Good morning. It's good to see you all in here for this special Wednesday bonus convocation. We have a, a, a very special guest here today. Tim Wise, a nationally known author and speaker on anti-racism and white privilege. But before we get to that, I just want to give you a couple of reminders about this space. A couple things about this space. Beginning of the year, I talked to you guys about convocation, right? The goals of convocation. Did you bring that up for me? So these are the three goals, if we remember. We're going to strengthen the learning community of the college here in this space. It's one of the things we do. We present different viewpoints to spark conversation in the space. And we foster integrative learning. So bringing things in that you know from outside this space here to think about how those things apply to the conversation that's brought to you. An important thing for also supporting each other's learning. Now, just, just to remind you again, this is a convocation. So in chapel, you've heard a couple different people this year already in chapel talking to you about uh, issues of race, issues of privilege. You heard Alexi Torres Fleming came and did a couple of sessions. That was great. You heard Brenda Salter McNeil already. So we've attended to the heart, to the spirit, and today we're going to attend to the head uh, when we talk about anti-racism. And again, I'll share this quote with you about being willing to be disturbed. So go ahead and read that. <laughs> something important to remember always is that if someone says something that surprises you, you should think about that because that's a place where you can reveal yourself to you in a way it's kind of like a gift. I didn't think about that. Oh, that must mean something about me. So, again, our diversity stance here, that's the one we talk about in the Multicultural Affairs Committee, in the Mosaic Group, in, the, in a number of other places, our stance an inquiry stance. We're asking, we're not assuming. We're considering that people belong to a lot of different groups, not just one we might perceive they belong to, and that we want to resist that temptation to stereotype, which is very easy and which we do to each other as well. You may even find yourself stereotyping me or today's speaker. I would ask you to resist that temptation. So, right? You could have one kind of idea on one hand, a healthy, eating, good living idea, which you're trying to balance with the tasty stuff that adds spice to your life. And the great thing about a liberal education is that it's supposed to help you not have those ideas fighting in the bacon versus tofu mode, but actually holding those two things in tension, holding them in tension, and even understanding that when two ideas come together, they might come in different forms, the raw form or the cooked form. Are you disturbed yet? 
But I just want to come back to this, that this space should promote across campus an, uh, an idea about listening to one another in a deep way. Again, you can read the quote. And because we know that curiosity and good listening bring us back together, I want to highlight the fact that there's two talkback sessions after this, hosted on campus by the Mosaic Group, by CITL, by the Multicultural Affairs Office. This Friday coming up in the Culp Lounge in the basement of Culp, right around the corner from the dining hall. And then another one on Wednesday next week in uh, Newcomer 19, where we'll actually be serving pizza. I didn't put that up there, but we will be having pizza there. Uh, today, right after this, uh, there'll be a Q&A session in here until about 11, and then we're gonna go over to the CITL office for you know the usual thing that we do. We'll have some pastries and a little coffee over there. And I wanna make sure that you know that we have anti-racism literature outside in the hallway, both from the Mennonite Church and from some other sources, if you're interested. So, without any kind of further, uh, I'd like to introduce today's guest. Today we have uh, with us Tim Wise, a nationally known speaker, whose most recent book is Between Barack and a Hard Place. Please join me in welcoming Tim Wise. Thank you. Um, I, I have no idea how to uh, follow a presentation on bacon and tofu. <laughs> I've never in 16 years had to do that or anything even remotely like it before. I'm not really happy about it. Um, <laughs> and I'm also, I'm in trouble if that's our only two choices because I don't like tofu and I'm Jewish and I'm not supposed to eat bacon. Um, <clears throat> and bacon wrapped around tofu given the combination of my dietary preferences and my religion, I'm just in all kinds of trouble right now. So uh, we're going to have to eat something else later. Um, thank you all so much <clears throat> for being here. I know you, uh, to some extent, have a freedom to choose which of these you're going to come to in the course of a semester. And so I appreciate, uh, for those of you who have chosen to be here for this particular day, that you have done so. I want to start by telling you a story. Um, not because it's a story about race and racism, it's not really, but it's a story that I think when I'm done with it, you'll understand that it has a point that it makes about that subject, even though it's not really the, uh, the topic of the story itself. It's a story about something that happened to me about 19 years ago, well, not about 19 years ago, but exactly that, uh, shortly after I graduated from college. I went to Tulane in New Orleans, Louisiana, graduated in May of 1990. And when I got out of school, I uh, thought it would be a really great idea, for reasons that I'm still completely unclear on, to move into a very large house with nine other people as my roommates. Now actually, when I say I don't know why I thought this was a good idea, that's not really true. I do know why I probably thought it was a good idea. It was because I was broke. And when you're broke, you will do all kinds of really ridiculous things, like say to yourself, oh, how wonderful it would be to live in a really big house with nine other people. I'm sure that's going to work out just fantastic. It is not going to work out that way. So if you take away nothing else from my time with you today, just, just, just take this 
don't ever make the mistake of moving into a really large house with nine other people because even though we saved money, there were other problems. Now, we did save the dough. I mean, it was $525 a month. And I don't mean per person, okay? I mean total, right? So even in 1990 dollars, that was pretty good. That was 52.50 a month. I'm not good at math, but I can figure that one out. 52.50 a month. You add the utility bills, the grocery bills, uh, all the stuff that we split. It was still less than 100 dollars each. So I understand the reason that we did it. But about six weeks in to our little experiment in communal living, which we tried to make all political by calling it a co-op, but it wasn't political. It was just a really nasty house with 10 people living in it. Uh, having ideological discussions over dinner. I mean, that was about as political as it got. Right, so we have 10 people in the house. I come home one day from work, and I notice that one of my roommates is making dinner for the evening because we did that too. We, we, we took turns cooking. And it was his night, and he's making dinner for the group on the left front burner of our stove, a big pot of gumbo because it's New Orleans, and if you know anything about New Orleans, you know that that's what you do at least once a week, you're going to make gumbo. And man, it, it, and it, it, was, it, it even had shrimp in there. Not many. Like I told you, we were broke. But it had three of those really little bitty shrimp. The, those shrimp that you can't see, let alone can you taste them. But the mere knowledge that you have that in the gumbo when you're broke makes you think, oh, it's seafood gumbo. See, we're living really good right now. You can't even taste the stuff, but you get to tell people you know, that, you, that you had really good dinner. So it looked good and it smelled good. Got there and he asked me if I wanted some. And I said, well, you know, it does look great, but I'm going to have to pass because I already ate downtown before coming back up here. I didn't know you were making this, but I'll tell you what, do me a favor, take some of it, put it in the fridge in some Tupperware, save it for tomorrow. I'll, I'll take some of it to lunch because it does look great. He said, cool, I'll do that. So I went upstairs and I hung out with some of the roommates, watched a little TV, I think, did some work that I was behind on, went to bed sort of early, woke up the next morning and came downstairs at about 7.15 to um, get some coffee and get ready for work. And I noticed when I got down there that on the left front burner of our stove was still this pot of gumbo. Now it's about 12 hours old, 13 hours old. Doesn't look as good as it had the day before. Does not smell nearly as good as it had the night before. And no portion of it had been saved for me, nor had the pot been cleaned. So I was upset for two reasons. I mean, the food had gone to waste, right? And the mess had been left for me. But I said to myself, in spite of being sort of angry about it, I said, look, I got like 15 minutes before I got to get on the streetcar to go downstairs. I'm just going to clean it. I'll take it up with him later, right? So I grab the gumbo. I bring it over to the sink. I start the water. I get the soap, the, the brush, the, uh, the gloves, because I didn't want to touch this. You know, it was getting pretty nasty with my bare hands. And uh, just before I let the water go into the pot of gumbo, I stopped myself, right? And I said, wait a minute. I don't have to clean this. And I didn't make this mess. I didn't even eat any of this, right? This isn't my problem. Now I felt really self-righteous, right? Because I'd gotten myself off the hook. I had talked myself out of doing the work to clean up his mess. So I put the pot of gumbo back on the stove, went out the door, went to work, came back that night at about 6.30. And I noticed that one of my other roommates was making dinner for the evening on the right front burner of the stove. But on the left front burner of the stove was still the pot of gumbo now 24 and a half hours old getting nastier and crustier by the minute and I looked at my roommate and I said now you're gonna have to explain something to me how is it that you can make dinner for this evening on the right front burner when I'm fairly confident you know you can you can smell last night's dinner because it's like right there under your left nostril and he looked at me smart guy that he was because you know he too had graduated from college and we all know that's what makes you smart <laughs> and he said uh, oh but Tim I uh, I didn't make the gumbo. I wasn't even here for dinner last night. 
And then he pointed a very accusing finger at me and he said, did you have any of this gumbo? And I said, oh man, not me. And he said, well, neither did I. And now we both felt very self-righteous because now we both gotten ourselves off the hook. He looked at me and said, would you like some lentils and rice? And I said, very self-righteously, yes, I would. <laughs> I took my lentils and rice. We both looked at the gumbo, did nothing with it, cleaned the plate, put it in the dish drainer to dry, went upstairs, hung out with the roommates, Watched a little bit of TV, as I recall, went to bed fairly early, woke up the next morning at 7 a.m. I'd forgotten to set an alarm clock, by the way. But let me just give you a little tip, and I don't think I probably need to tell you this. You probably can figure this part out on your own. But if you're living in a house where a pot of gumbo has been sitting on the left front burner of your stove for what is now 36 and a half hours, trust me when I tell you, you are not going to need an alarm clock to wake you up because the smell is going to crawl out of the pot of gumbo on the legs that it has grown. And for you who are English majors, I'm speaking not in metaphor, by the way, <laughs> nor am I being deliberately hyperbolic. I mean that the stench is going to actually sprout literal legs and feet and it is going to crawl out of the pot, across the kitchen, across the living room floor, up the back stairs, go down the back hall, go under your door frame and it will find at seven in the morning with the precision of a laser, that thing on the front of your face that you refer to as a nose, and you're going to be awake. And now I was, and I was none too happy. I swing the door open, I'm angry. I run down the hall, I know what's waiting for me in the left front burner of the stove, having not been cleaned by anybody, least of all the guy that made the mess. I live with nine other people, can't find one of them. The guy that made the gumbo is like Osama bin Laden. Nobody knows where he went. It's as if he made the gumbo as a practical joke to see how long it would take for somebody else to clean it and then skip town. I get to the bottom of the stairs. I look across the living room into the kitchen. I see the gumbo on the left front burner of the stove and I'm confident almost two decades later that the gumbo saw me. <laughs> and it was at this moment, not one moment earlier, but certainly not even a moment later, that I came to understand maybe the most important lesson I'd ever learned up to that point in my life, and not just about gumbo, not just about household cleanliness, and the most important lesson that had ever been taught to me, whether by someone with a PhD or just someone on the block, and that lesson was that it really didn't matter anymore, did it, whether I was the one who had created the mess in that house. All that mattered was that I was tired of living in that funk, right? I was tired of living in the nastiness, the residue of someone else's actions, for which I was not to blame, but the legacy of which I was now inheriting. And the same is true with human society, right? When we get tired of living in that funk, in that residue of other people's actions, right? Actions for which we are not to blame, but actions which carry a legacy that we now inherit, we will clean it. Not because we did it, not because we are guilty, but because we're the only ones here. We're the only ones left to do it. There is a profound difference, in other words, between guilt and responsibility. Guilt is what you feel for what you did. Responsibility is what you take because you are right? Guilt is what you feel for what you did. Responsibility is what you take because you are. And if you don't take it, it won't be taken. And when it comes to not just gumbo, but when it comes to the history and the legacy of race and racism in our country, it is a tortured and a twisted one indeed. And it affects every single one of us. You see, they lied to us, or at least they gave us sort of a partial truth back in third grade or whatever it was when they taught us about inertia right, in science class, what they teach you? That an object in motion will continue in the same general direction 
right, until it is stopped by a force of greater equal weight pushing in the opposite direction so as to stop it. That was true, but the partial truth piece was that they didn't tell you that that wasn't just a property of the physical universe. It is that, but it's also a property of the socioeconomic universe, the political universe, the cultural universe. That which happens in one generation affects the next and the next and the next and in exactly the same direction until it is stopped by a force of greater or equal weight pushing against it. And so in this country, we have inherited a legacy for which we are not to blame, but for which we must take some responsibility because it lives in us for 300 years, going back to the days of the colonies of what would become the United States of America. This society was a formal system of white supremacy. Formal, institutionalized, ingrained, embedded system of white racial supremacy that involved not just the enslavement of African peoples and the genocide of indigenous peoples, but the theft of one half of the nation of Mexico in a war of aggression started very much by our nation under false pretense, the exploitation of migrant labor that we would bring in to do the work and then send back across that very artificial southern border, frankly, when we no longer felt the need for those workers and the exploitation of Asian migrant labor to build the railroads that made possible the transcontinental economy and so many other things about which we could speak. It was a formal system and it was a system that elevated every single person who could qualify for the designation white. Now make no mistake, that changed from generation to generation and century to century. It wasn't always the case that every European qualified for the de designation, but as soon as you could, you would, in, in fact, were elevated above anyone who could not, that is to say, generally speaking, people of European descent, in a formal sense up until the 1960s, by law, not just custom, but by law, would be elevated in every single instance above anyone of color. Even those of us of European descent who came with very little, such as my great-grandfather, Jewish Russian immigrant, arrived on these shores in 1907, coming from Minsk in what is now Belarus, what was then the nation of Russia. He came with the proverbial 38 cents and a ball of lint in his pocket, which is the story we all tell about our families when they came here. They had nothing but 38 cents or maybe 11 cents and a ball of lint or maybe two balls of lint and a hard work ethic. My great-grandfather had that work ethic. Indeed, he worked 18 hours a day for most days from the time that he got to this country until the time he died at the age of 91. And yet, let us remember, there were other folks who'd been here for quite a bit longer indigenous people, African-descended peoples, people who were and had been Mexican but who now had been in some sense subsumed into the United States when their land was taken and perhaps came in as migrant labor as well, people who had worked on this land for 18 hours a day also, every day, all of their lives and yet had not been able to have that hard work and that work ethic met with access to an opportunity structure the way that even my great-grandfather, in spite of being a Jew who was disliked for that, in spite of having limited English language skills and therefore he was disliked for that, in spite of his customs and his cultural differences, nonetheless, as a member of a European nation, he was able to get jobs off the boat on day one that were off limits to people of color and had been for decades, for generations. That doesn't take away his hard work. It doesn't minimize by one iota his work ethic. It does mean, however, that he was still elevated and it wasn't just his work ethic that got him to where he was. Because a lot of people have worked hard and they didn't have the same opportunity structure that even the lowest of European migrants typically had. Needless to say, this was true of others of our families. 
Parts of my family go back to the 1630s in this country, were able to come into the colonies of what would become this country and receive 50 acres of land and the tools to work that land under something called the headright system. You probably didn't even learn about this in school. I didn't know about this thing until literally five years ago doing some genealogical research. The headright system said that if you were a male head of household from England, you could come to this country and being white, received 50 acres of land and the tools to work it for nothing. Land, which of course first had to be taken from indigenous people and redistributed by the state or by the colony. My fifth degree great-grandfather who served in the army during the Revolutionary War, served in the militia and for his service was given 10,000 acres of free land as payment. Keep in mind there were 5,000 African descended folks who also fought in the Revolutionary War they did not so much as receive freedom for their service, let alone 10,000 acres of land, a government handout to people like my fifth-degree great-grandfather, not because of his work ethic, not because of his morals, not because of his ethics, not because of his decency, but because of where he was from, the color of his skin, his European ancestry. More recently, my grandfather served in the military. Certainly, you don't get rich doing that. But during World War II, was able to go to officer's candidacy school at a time when people of color who were in the military could not. He was able to, after leaving the military, go into civil service and get jobs that people of color could not, and then buy a home in a suburban community where people of color could not. And it was that home that I used as collateral to help pay for college, getting that when my grandmother co-signed the loan at the bank because my mom didn't have any money. I grew up living in an apartment all 17 years of my life from the time I was three days old until the day I walked out the door to go to school. And my mother didn't have any collateral, but her mom had that house. It was the fourth house that she and her husband, my grandfather, who'd been dead six years by the time I needed it, right? She co-signed the loan using her home, a home she couldn't have even had had she not been white, to finance my college education. You see, this stuff is not ancient history. This is not the past. This is very much embodied in the present. And again, we need not feel any guilt about this. I don't. I'm not guilty for any of those things that I mentioned nor will I feel guilt for them. But the question we have to ask ourselves is how we respond to that legacy, how we respond to the recognition, to the recognition of unjust advantage. You see, if we're going to expect those who start out with disadvantages, either economic or because of racial discrimination or because of gender discrimination or any other form of bias, if we're going to expect those who start out behind to work hard nonetheless, and of course we do. And the parents of those who start out behind, they're the ones who tell their kids, you're gonna to have to work twice as hard to get half as far. That is intended as a spur to hard work and initiative. If we're going to expect that from those who start behind, as we would expect it of ourselves, I assume, if we were to, then we have to also have some reciprocity on the other end. It is not sufficient to expect those who start behind to have to work twice as hard and say, well, that's just the breaks and that's just the way life is. We also have a collective responsibility to say that for those of us who start with advantages, whether they are economic, whether they are racial, or maybe a combination of the two in some cases, whether they are in terms of nationality and the advantages of being a quote-unquote native-born person in this country, whether they are the advantages of gender, whether the advantages of sexual orientation, religious dominance and hegemony, whatever the binary or the dualism might be, if you have an advantage over others, you also have to have something expected from you. Just as we would expect others to do something to try to overcome disadvantage, those of us who start ahead must also do something 
to clear the field so that individuals who then do that will be met with access to the opportunity structure that has so often been there for us. Now, I know it's easy to ignore all of this because nowadays we're told we don't really have to think about it because we're in the age of Obama and the age of Oprah, and she's so rich, you know, she could just buy every single one of us and give us out as free gifts to her audience on Friday afternoons or whatever it is she does, <clears throat> right? We look around and we see all these outward manifestations of real progress, and I don't want to suggest that they're not real. I just want us to be cautious because if we come to believe that the mere presence of a man of color at the head of state somehow suggests that racism is either not a problem or even if it is a problem, it's certainly not one that can stop a person who's willing to work hard. After all, look, he's the president, then we're going to miss the larger systemic truth. And here's how we know that one does not equal the other. Individual accomplishment says very little, actually, about systemic and institutional truth. How do we know that? Well, we know it because we can look at other nations and we can look at a context other than race and make the analogy. If I were to tell you that girls and women in Pakistan now have fully equal opportunity and we don't need to worry about sexism and patriarchal domination of women in Pakistan. And this we know, why? Because Benazir Bhutto, after all, was the head of state there. She was elected the first time in 1988 and again in the early 90s. So Pakistan, right, which I don't think anybody actually thinks has eradicated patriarchy, right, actually has had a female head of state twice. We have never had one. Right? But I don't think anyone would take from that or in Israel or India or Great Britain all three of which, in addition to Pakistan, have had female heads of state, and there are some others you could think of as well. I don't think we would say that girls and women in those four nations have suddenly no more gender-based obstacles that are in their way because women happen to have run their countries. Do we really think that? Of course not. No one would even make the argument. And if they did, they'd be laughed at. Somebody would throw something at them because it would be so utterly ridiculous. And yet, that's really what we're being asked to swallow in our own country about race because of the presence of a man of color as president. He is exhibit one and exhibit two and exhibit three, four, and five. In other words, he's the only exhibit that anyone ever offers for proof that we're post-racial. And it's no more proof of that than Benazir Bhutto and Indira Gandhi and Golda Meir and Margaret Thatcher are proof of being post-sexism, post-patriarchy in the nations over which they have ruled and governed. We also need to know that it isn't just the legacy of the past that we inherit. I mean, that's a big piece of it. And it's a piece that ought to at least get us into this conversation. But if that were all it was, maybe we could just leave that in the history class, right? We could just talk about it in history and be done. But unfortunately, that legacy isn't just the inertia of that snowball rolling down the hill historically for over 300 years. It's a big piece of it, but there's also the ongoing truth that on top of that legacy, there are additional layers of inequality and discrimination being layered on right now in the present. You see, we like to think that because the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, the Fair Housing Act were passed in 64, 65, 68 respectively, that all of a sudden, since those laws were passed, by definition, there's very little else that must be done. But we have laws against murder, and as I speak, someone is being killed. We have laws against theft, and as I speak, someone is stealing something. We have laws against sexual assault, and yet it happens all the time. And as happened just the other day, in a story that you may well have heard about out in California, people will sit around and watch it. 
and not even call the police when they see a young woman being viciously sexually assaulted by a group of 15 different people over the course of two and a half hours. So laws themselves don't mean very much in terms of changing our behavior. We need to have them as social norms, but they don't really say a lot about what's really going on. What is going on is that in this country, according to recent research, not, not past 20 and 30 years ago, but right now in the 2000s, evidence says what? That job applicants with white sounding names are 50% more likely to get called back for an interview by the potential employer than job applicants with quote unquote black sounding names, even when all the qualifications are the same, right? Similar research has been done now on folks who are Arab American or have quote unquote Middle Eastern names, folks who have what we call Hispanic surnames, similar results. Equal qualifications, equal years of experience, same level of education, simply having a name that marks you as the other quote unquote is sufficient to allow employers to overlook those qualifications entirely. That's going on now. Again, not 10 and 20 and 30 years ago. We know that the average white family in the country right now, the average now, we're not talking about average rich people, just the average white family in general has about 11 times the net worth of the average black family, eight times the net worth of the average Latino family largely in part because of those inequities of the past. But you know what else adds to that? The ongoing housing discrimination to which people of color are subjected and about which we very rarely speak. So for example, there are two to four million cases every year. Now that's a pretty big spread, but let's just take the lower number just to be conservative and say it's only two million cases of race-based housing discrimination. But understand what that means. It means people of color who in most cases, yeah, they can get a mortgage, if they try to get one, but they're not going to get it on nearly the same terms as a white family would. So they're going to be steered into subprime loans at much higher rates of interest than they would have been with the same collateral, the same credit record, the same income, the same occupational status if they'd just been white. What the research has found is that, for example, you will have black and Latino and Asian American and indigenous Native North American families and households steered into those higher rate loans and over the course of a 30 year mortgage that family may have to pay an additional $250,000 worth of interest that they wouldn't have had to pay had they been white because they would have gotten the loan at much better terms. Understand what that means, a quarter of a million dollars on average in additional interest over the life of the loan, multiply that by thousands and even tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands and even millions of families over the course of a couple of decades. And what you're seeing is literally billions of dollars in lost assets, billions of dollars in lost wealth, billions of dollars in lost equity that those folks of color don't have, but that they would have had they simply been treated the same as whites in the housing market. So when we talk about that 11 to 1 wealth spread, the 8 to 1 wealth spread vis-a-vis -vis Latinos, we're not talking about a wealth spread that can be explained by hard work or the lack thereof. We're talking about a wealth spread that is the result of opportunity and the lack thereof, discrimination in the lives of some that is keeping them from being able to accumulate wealth in anywhere near the same rate as others. And then that has a huge effect on the economy. That doesn't just hurt those people of color who can't get those homes, right? Because it ends up hurting the quality of education their, their kids will receive. What's the number one way that most parents pay for their kids' college education, the part that isn't covered by loans or by financial aid? The number one way is by accessing equity in their home. 
What's the number one way that most people start a business if they want to start a business? It's by accessing the equity in their home. And so if you have billions of dollars less equity in black and brown communities because of housing discrimination being steered to high interest loans when you could have qualified for a better low interest loan, then you're talking about billions of dollars less with which to start businesses. Billions of dollars less with which to finance the college education, the graduate level education, et cetera, of your children. This ends up having residual effects on the whole economy because if folks can't access that, can't start their own businesses, can't get the level of education they otherwise would get, do you not think that affects the productivity of the economy that we all depend on? Of course it does. It has effects on every single one of us. So there's a practical level need here for us to address it as well. It's not just ethics and morality, it's also practicality, survival in a 21st century global economy where if you think it's possible to maintain a healthy society where half of that population, which is what people of color will be in about 30 years, where half of the population has twice the unemployment rate and three times the poverty rate of the other half, where half the population has 10 years less life expectancy on average than the other half, where half of the population has infant mortality and low birth weight baby rates that are two to three times the other half, then you're kidding yourself if you believe that that's a sustainable system. It isn't, not just for those who are at the bottom of that, right, but even those who feel like we are at the top. But there's one more aspect I want to leave you with before taking some questions. If this were just about data and studies and history and statistics and facts, then we could leave it in the classroom. We wouldn't have to do it in convocation where we're trying to appeal to all these different arenas, right? The heart, the head, the spirit, all of this stuff. But there is another aspect, and although Ross said that I was going to deal mostly with the head, I've done that now. I want to close there. I want to sort of wrap it up in a, in a nice, neat bow to sort of give you the real sense of why this ought to be so important to every one of us. Because you see, it isn't just business. It is personal. And I've known this for a very long time. I've written about it. I've spoken about it. But it's amazing how even when you think you've learned everything that you need to know about how racism and racial inequality can warp you and change you and affect who you are, you learn something new. Even when you thought all the learning was done because you were real smart and you were a published author and you had been giving hundreds of speeches around the country for over a decade or even 14 or 15 years. You see, a couple of years ago during the summer, early part of the summer when our girls were six and four. They're now eight and six. We were sitting around one Sunday, rainy afternoon, didn't really have anything to do, couldn't go to the park, sort of too, too nasty outside to do anything, right? So we're sitting around and we're thinking, we'll just watch a movie, right? We'll, we'll turn on the, uh, the cable satellite, the on-demand thing, and we'll order up a movie for $4.95 or whatever it is. And so we're flipping around and we're looking for some movie that'll be appropriate for the kids to watch at that age and that they'll understand and enjoy. And most of the options weren't real good, but we came upon this particular trailer for the movie Evan Almighty. And I'm sure some of you have seen it, maybe most of you have, maybe all of you, I don't know. But anyway, Evan Almighty is uh, basically the modern retelling of the Noah and the Ark story, right? It's Steve Carell plays a senator or a congressman, whatever, who is told by God, who's played by Morgan Freeman, that a flood is coming and that he should build a really large boat to ride it out, you know. So we've heard the story before, but this is a more modern comedic twist on this very uh, old story. And my kids had actually already seen Evan Almighty. They had gone to see it with my wife uh, while I was out of town. So they didn't really want to watch it again. 
But because they had seen it, they at least recognized it. When the trailer came up, it sort of got their attention. They recognized the characters. They recognized the dialogue. So they looked up, and the littlest of our two daughters, Rachel, looks up, and she sees Morgan Freeman in his flowing white robes in the role of God. And she says what a four-year-old would say, which is, Daddy, is that really God? Because she's four. She doesn't understand casting. She doesn't understand the Screen Actors Guild, you know. She doesn't understand, she, as far as she knows, God had nothing better to do, decided to come make a movie. And uh, <laughs> what does she know? I mean, she's four, right? So, so she said it, and I sort of giggled and laughed about it, thought it was sort of cute. And I said, no, no, honey, that, that's Morgan Freeman. He, he's just an actor. Um, he, he, he plays God often. So you'll... <laughs> you'll probably see him in this role again, but, but don't be confused, you know, he's just an actor. And I thought that would be the end of the conversation. I had every reason to think we were done and we would now move on and watch some other film. And then our oldest daughter, Ashton, who at that time was six, and with whom I've had lots of conversations about race, more than I had had up to that point with Rachel, just based on chronology alone, looks up, sees Morgan Freeman, looks at her sister and says, just as sure as she can be, Rachel, that can't be God. Now, I knew in this moment two things. The first thing I knew was that I was going to have to ask her why, or in this case, why not. And the second thing I knew was that I already was very, very clear of what the answer was going to be before I asked her the question. I was looking for some help from my wife, right? She's sitting across the room in a chair. I look over at her. I'm like, you got to help me out here because... And she's, she's, I'm getting nothing. I mean, nothing. She's, she, she's looking back at me with this look that says, okay, smarty, you know, this is, this is your area of expertise, so good luck with this. Can't wait to see how you handle it. Let me write it down even, you know. So I look back at my daughter and I asked her why not. And in the millisecond before she could answer, I was sort of transported out of my body. I had this sort of fantasy, right, that she was going to come up with some really brilliant answer, like, that can't be God because God is a woman, or, or, or some existentialist answer like, God, what is God anyway? <laughs> that, would have been, that would have been cool. That would have been great. But, you know, she was six, so that would have been asking a little from her. I had hopes, though. I had hopes. So in that millisecond, I had this fantasy, but it was all shattered by her answer, which was exactly as I knew it would be. She said, that can't be God because God isn't black. Now, I don't think it will probably come as a surprise to you that in our home, we do not have any racialized imagery of a deity anywhere. We don't have any type of imagery that would give the impression that God was the equivalent of Santa in the sky, right? some white guy with a white beard in a cloud, right? We don't have any of that. We don't have any Bible story picture books for children, right, that would give the impression that Adam and Eve had resided against all evidence in the Garden of Sweden. We don't have anything like that. <laughs> nothing. Nothing like that do we have. Not, not one stitch of racialized imagery regarding God or any other biblical figure, and yet there it is. There's that daughter picking that up. She's not getting it in the home, but where is she getting it? Well, she gets it when she goes to the library and she sees those books or the bookstore. She sees it in her own church. She's being raised Episcopalian. She sees the 
racialized imagery of God, racialized imagery of Jesus. She sees it every Christmas time when folks send us those beautiful, lovely Christmas cards, which have frankly racialized Jesus as a person of European derivation against all logic, anthropological, and biblical evidence to the contrary. And so you come away with that conditioning, whether or not you're getting it at home. Make no mistake, if you were to break into my house and try to hurt my children, I would kill you. And I hate to say that in a, you know, in, I know I shouldn't say that. I know I shouldn't say that. But self-defense is an accepted biblical principle. It's, it's there, several places. There's violence in scripture that isn't even self-defense, so I'm okay, I think I'm good, but... Understand, I'm not a violent person. I don't own a weapon of any kind, but I'll find something, a, 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 a lamp, something. I, I'll take you out if you try to hurt my kids, right? Um, as I think most of us would. But understand the point, right? Something is coming into my house, and it is hurting my children, and the door is locked, and the windows are shut, and the alarm is on, and this thing that is coming in, it doesn't know the code to turn that alarm off, but it doesn't need to. It's coming in anyway, and I am powerless to stop it from coming in. And my wife, she is powerless to stop it from coming in. What we are not powerless over is how we respond to it. What we are not powerless over is the need to figure out how to respond to it and to take responsibility for doing it because it is affecting the six-year-old child. And if that can happen to my child, being raised in a pretty overtly anti-racist home, make no mistake, it can happen to you, it can happen to your children if you're lucky enough one day to have them, your grandchildren, and on down the line. And so long as that is true, we can't rest because this is doing something to us. It is poisoning us very slowly both as a society and as the individual human beings that we were meant to be, whether you believe that we were meant to be those beings by God, by nature, by some combination of the two, it really doesn't matter the source from which that intentionality arises so much as it is that in the very short time you're here, you'd better figure out what you're going to do to justify that time on this earth and the oxygen that you took up that other entities probably could have used to greater benefit. And the clock is ticking. And it's the only clock that we have. Thank you all so much for being here.